0: Last Sunday morning I mentioned that the theme of this past year's Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship was uh, the New Testament Christian, and a great series of lessons and a great lectureship uh, book with so many uh, different lessons on such an important theme. As we said last week, there is so much misunderstanding and misapplication about Christian that's why we began last Sunday by asking the question, what is a Christian? What about the New Testament Christian? That's the only Christian that pleases God because the New Testament makes New Testament makes Christians. And it's the only covenant that does make Christians, and Christians alone. And we mentioned then that on Sunday mornings, though we might not do it each Sunday morning, but for a period of time, I'm going to select themes from that lectureship book, on the New Testament Christian and present lessons that I believe will be beneficial to us, hopefully, as we study the theme of the New Testament Christian in a time when there is so much misunderstanding and misapplication and faulty definitions, if you will, of what a Christian truly is. Today, we're going to present a lesson that's based on the lecture that was given by our brother David Sane, great gospel preacher. And uh, that lesson was the New Testament Christian. The New Testament Christian knows Jesus Christ, the object of faith. The New Testament Christian. I believe that's a logical point, beginning point. Once we, once we determine what a Christian is and a definition of the New Testament Christian, then obviously we need to appreciate the fact that if one is a New Testament Christian, one knows Jesus Christ, has to know Jesus Christ, and that Christ is the object of faith. You know, there's a hymn that we, that we sing entitled, Do You Know My Jesus? It's a beautiful hymn beautiful hymn. And the chorus of that great hymn asks this question, do you know my Jesus? Do you know my friend? Have you heard he loves you and that he will abide till the end? Do you know my Jesus? A biblical understanding of Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial to one's Salvation, And we know today that there are many who claim to believe in Jesus, but tragically they really do not have faith in the Jesus Christ who is presented in the New Testament. The New Testament Christian knows Jesus Christ, his nature, and his person as taught in the Word of God, as taught in the Old and the New Testament because the Old Testament spoke. Of the Christ. And much of our emphasis in this lesson today is going to be on that Old Testament, that Old Testament reference to Christ, because we are going to see, first of all, that Christ, the Christ that we should know, the Christ whom we should know, who is to be the object of our faith, is the fulfillment of prophecy. And once we examine this point from several perspectives, then we will come to the conclusion that Christ is the object of our faith. I'm going to look at the fulfillment of prophecy in, in four areas. First of all, his coming. Notice with me the prophecies of, of his coming. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to verse 15. And there the scripture says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was spoken by the Lord to to the serpent, that uh, the devil himself, as he took the form of a serpent, as he deceived Eve, and she in turn seduced Adam to eat of the tree that... Uh, They should not have eaten of. They had every tree other than that tree to partake of. They had so much freely given to them, and yet Satan tempted them. And as a result of that, there came the fall. The fall of man into sin. And then this statement, from the Lord to the serpent. I will put in between. Hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then here's the prophecy, the first vague prophecy as we sometimes refer to it, of the coming of Christ and his Redemption, price that he would pay for the sins of mankind. I will put enmity between you and uh, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, meaning Christ will bruise your head, Satan. And you will deliver but a heel bruise, a minor wound, if you will, by comparison to him. Referring to the crucifixion, about which we'll talk more in just a moment. But then we come over to Genesis chapter 12. And we see there the promise to Abraham as he promises to make of his seed a great nation. But the ultimate blessing, the greatest blessing that would ultimately come is that through you or in you, as the latter part of Genesis 12, 3 points out, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a reference to the coming of Christ and the blessings that would come as a result of the coming of, of the Christ. And then we come to the great messianic prophet himself, as he is called, Isaiah. And in one of those prophecies, in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, I, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of these wonderful wonderful descriptions of the one who would come who would be the christ now incidentally the fact that the old testament prophesied of his coming and the fact that genesis 3:15 is an undeniable reference to the redemptive price that christ would pay through his death it clearly as we have so often said <clears throat> excuse me it clearly as we have so often said denies the premillennial premise That premise that says Christ came to this earth to try to establish his earthly kingdom, and yet the Jews rejected him and crucified him. God had not anticipated that rejection, and therefore he set up the church as an afterthought, as plan B until such time as Christ will come again, and in his next coming he will establish his earthly kingdom. Nothing of that in any of these passages. None of that in any passage referring to the Christ as you shall see as we go further and talk about the prophecies concerning his crucifixion. Keep that in mind, that the premillennial premise is God didn't anticipate that the Jews would reject and crucify his son. And see if anyone could hold on to that honestly and objectively after we go through the passages concerning his coming and especially his crucifixion. But before we come there, let's go to his conception. The conception of Christ is also prophesied. Going back again to the Messianic prophet. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7:14. Now I realize that that uh, virgin, the word virgin, some have contended that that just simply means a young woman. Not one who truly had never known a man sexually. But clearly that is not the case. And if there had been or could be any possible doubt about Isaiah's use of that term, which there should not be in the Old Testament word itself, but when we come to Matthew's account of the gospel in Matthew chapter 1, 21 through 23, what does he tell us? And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now listen. So all this was done. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying. And here's the quoting of Isaiah 7.14. Behold the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us. And the word used there for virgin there can be absolutely no question about the fact. Nor should there have been about the Old Testament usage. But Matthew nails it down if there could be any possible doubt. Christ was conceived of a woman who had never known relations with a man and was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. And concerning his conception, one other passage from Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 speaks of the birth of Christ. But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are... Little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you, out of this little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Before he became flesh, he existed as the word, the logos, the living word, equal with God. But he became flesh. And Micah's prophecy is very specific as to the place of that birth because he could have tried to guess at it by just going with Bethlehem and he would have had two chances that way at least had he just said Bethlehem because there are two Bethlehems. There were two Bethlehems at the time Jesus was born. There was Bethlehem in Zebulun in the tribe of Zebulun. Near, Gal- near Nazareth, up in that area of Galilee, <clears throat> and then there was Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem Ephrathah, as it was called, also Bethlehem of Judea, where Christ was born. The prophet Micah specified the very Bethlehem, and that's the very place where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. His coming is prophesied. His conception is prophesied. But what about his crucifixion? Without question, there is ample evidence that indeed the death of Christ was not an afterthought with God. It was not plan B, therefore the church becomes plan B. No, the church was in the mind of God long before the patriarchal or law of Moses was initiated. It is the wisdom of God being fully manifested in the church that was what? Purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, Acts 20. In verse 28, as Paul reminded the Ephesian elders, the crucifixion was prophesied by those who could never have known that it was coming except by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at Isaiah 50 and verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Is that an apt description of what took place just prior to the crucifixion in the trials of Christ? Of course it is. In the scourging that he underwent, a scourging that in many times led to the death of those who were scourged, something that was horrific and painful beyond imagination, And to be spat upon, to be ridiculed as he was in the trials, as he underwent those mock trials filled with illegalities even among the Jews as they cared not for even their own law in trying and ultimately crucifying Christ. Isaiah prophesied of it hundreds of years before it occurred. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Clearly, another of the references to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. In his mouth, Isaiah 53, 9. Whose tomb was the body of Jesus placed in? The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A poor man, no, a rich man. Nicodemus of the Jews had a part in that. There's indication that he was quite well to do. And so the prophecy of Isaiah in this regard fulfilled. In minute detail. Now you've noticed how many passages we've looked at. And there are more that could be seen from one chapter. There are hundreds of prophecies. But Isaiah 53 is so crucial. And any proper study of prophecy about Christ. Would certainly have to include Isaiah chapter 53. As our brother who delivered the lecture at Memphis on this subject. David Sane said and I love this statement. God allowed his son to die as if he had sinned, so that man could live as if he had not sinned. And that is a poignant statement. God allowed his son, his sinless son, who was with him from eternity, for all eternity, who was equal with God, who humbled himself. And- took upon Himself the form of a servant, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 5. God allowed His Son to die as if He had sinned. He had not sinned, but He bore upon Him the sins of all mankind for all time. A burden that it is impossible for the finite mind to fully comprehend in terms of what deity suffered. Why? So that all of us could live as though we had not sinned. What a sacrifice. And passages that reinforce that statement are found in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Then Colossians 1:21 and 22, Paul reminds those Christians and thus Christians for all time. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, how? In the body of his flesh, on the cross that he is through death, to present you, how? Holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The only way we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach in God's sight is through the sacrifice that his son was willing to make. Oh how we should respond to that sacrifice. Oh, how we should make Christ the object of our faith. But before we examine that point in a little more detail, one final point, in addition to his coming, his conception, and his crucifixion. If it all ended there with the crucifixion, And if his body remained in that rich man's tomb to this very day, there would have been no point in our gathering here this morning. But there's something else that was prophesied. And that is his coronation. You see, Jesus didn't remain in the grave. His resurrection was predicted and his ultimate coronation as he ascended back to the Father in heaven to receive his crown, as it were, to receive his kingdom. Jesus did not remain in that tomb, but he came forth to ascend to the Father and to do what? And to receive the kingdom that he himself promised that he would establish. Remember in Matthew 16, 18 and 19. After Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ... He commended Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, not Peter, but upon this great truth you have just confessed. I will build my church. I will establish my kingdom, in other words. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'm going into the Hadian realm. My spirit will leave my body on the cross. It will go into Hades, specifically into paradise, but it will not remain there. It will come forth, and I will do what I have promised to do. I will build my church. I will establish my kingdom. Are the church and the kingdom the same? How many times have we covered this ground? Of course they are, but it needs to be covered continually because of the continual and perpetual error concerning the kingdom and the church and the claim that the kingdom and the church are two different things. No, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'll build my church, give you the keys to it. To the what? Kingdom, the church, yes. They're one and the same. Matthew sixteen, eighteen, and 19. And when did Jesus receive that kingdom? When he ascended to the Father. And who told about it long before it ever occurred? Daniel did. Listen to Daniel seven, thirteen, and 14. Daniel, long before, hundreds of years before this occurred, said this by inspiration. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the ascension. Acts 1 records that ascension. Remember as the apostles watched him ascend? Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father obviously, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." When was that kingdom established? Well, you can go back to Daniel 2, 31 through 44. As Daniel interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and said, ultimately in the days of these kings, he referred to the Roman kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces other kingdoms. It will endure forever. It will never be destroyed. That's the very kingdom that the Lord received when he ascended to the Father in heaven. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy, his coming, his conception, his crucifixion, and, oh yes, his coronation, which followed his resurrection. Then, should it not be the case that Christ should be the object of the Christian's faith? Because he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy clearly. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Word. He is the resurrection and the life. He is all of these wonderful, wonderful appellations that are attributed to him about which we could study for years and not exhaust. He is and should be the object Of the Christian's faith and the golden text of the Bible as it is so often called is one of the scriptures which reminds us that he is the object of the Christian's faith and the scriptures are replete with reminders that salvation is dependent upon one's faith in Jesus Christ for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life." Mark 16:16, 16, 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3:26. "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But what we must understand in every one of these passages is that faith has to manifest itself through actions, through obedience to God's Word. In that passage in John 3.16, as we have often studied, the word belief is used to comprehend every other condition of salvation that is elsewhere stated in Scripture. For example, the next verse, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Did Jesus meet himself coming back in those two passages? Jesus said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Then He said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Either belief in John 3.16 includes baptism or Jesus contradicted Himself. The Son of God is no longer the Son of God, if that's the case. Therefore, belief in John 3.16 has to be that comprehensive or inclusive belief that includes what Jesus enumerated clearly in the passage in Mark 16. You see, in John 3.16, it's used to comprehend every other condition. In Mark 16.16, two conditions among the many are stated. And for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26. What does the next verse read? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the next verse. How can it be faith alone? Well, what about for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There it is, you're saved by grace through faith. And someone could say, we can add verse 9 to that, which says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's true, not of works that I could devise, not of works of the law of Moses, which has been nailed to the cross. But I'll add the next verse to it, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which tells me that not all works are eliminated from God's plan of salvation. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. The faith that works the faith that works to earn salvation, not a possibility. The faith that works to appropriate salvation and accept God's grace, yes. That's exactly right. The New Testament Christian knows Jesus Christ, the object of faith. But he understands that that faith must obey all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. Sin places us under condemnation, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. But, in the words of the Apostle Paul, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Think about the words of the beautiful hymn, Jesus, name above all names. Beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us. Blessed Redeemer, Living Word, is Jesus Christ the object of your faith today? For that to be answered in the affirmative, you must believe. John eight twenty four. Believe that I am he or die in your sins. But as we have already said, that belief must lead you to repent of your sins. That is to change your mind about your condition and determine to change your condition. Repentance. And then you must confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 10.32, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven. And then, yes, then you must be baptized, just as we've already noted from Mark sixteen sixteen. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And when you've done that, you must continue to be faithful even unto death, Revelation two ten. in the kingdom, the church of our Lord, to which the Lord himself adds you, as you make him the object of your obedient faith. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it this very moment. And if you need to come home, we plead with you to do so as we stand to sing.